Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Arash Masoodi, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Absolute monarchies in the Arab Gulf have been splashing the petrodollars to lure sporting superstars to events in their venues in the desert. Officials in the Gulf states say the investment is part of their effort to diversify oil-dependent economies and boost tourism. But critics accuse them of using sport to deflect attention from poor human rights records. Here with me to discuss this is our sports correspondent, Murad Ahmed, and our Middle East editor, Andrew England. Murad, wealthy Arab states are not just providing plush venues for sporting events, but are also investing in sport around the world, notably in football clubs. What have been some of the biggest investments in football that we've seen over the past few years? Well, the two that are the splashiest and have made news are Abu Dhabi's ownership of Manchester City in the English Premier League, as well as the state of Qatar and its ownership of Paris Saint-Germain in Ligue 1. And both of those are particularly interesting because since their acquisitions, hundreds of millions of pounds and euros have been pumped into the clubs, primarily to acquire some of the world's best players and have pushed them towards the top of European football. And have these investments been welcomed by local fans? Local fans love it at least at first, because what fans want more than anything is winning teams. And what Sheikh Mansour, in the case of Manchester City, and Qatar and PSG have done, have taken relatively poorly performing teams and made them into world beaters. Manchester City and PSG, which, as you point out, are owned by Gulf nations, have been under investigation by football's governing body, or at least one of them, UEFA, over alleged breaches of financial fair play rules, which are designed to prevent unsustainable spending on players. What prompted these investigations and where do they stand now? Well, in around 2011, UEFA, European football's governing body, instituted these rules, basically saying that you have to spend within your means on players. And the Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain models wouldn't allow that really because they don't have as strong a support, as much money from prize money and so on. So they had to have a lot of money invested in them through their owners. And they had already been investigated once and reached settlements. The current investigations are to do with recent incidents. So in the case of Paris Saint-Germain, they broke the world transfer record to buy the Brazilian superstar Neymar around three years ago for 222 million euros, more than 100 million euros more than had ever been spent on a player before. It showed the kind of the financial strength of the club. But a lot of people felt at the time that that was going to break the spending limits imposed by UEFA. There's a feeling that this is an ultra political issue because why would UEFA want to kick out one of the best teams from their money-spinning tournament, the Champions League? Manchester City was a slightly different case in that there was something called Football Leaks, which was a load of newspapers and news websites around Europe getting hold of essentially hacked documents into football. And one of them, if you were to take the reports at face value, seems to suggest that Manchester City had employed lots of clever ways to work around the financial fair play rules in ways that were deliberately designed to break the rules. But the backlash became clear this week when UEFA banned Manchester City from the Champions League for two seasons, which is a completely unprecedented punishment given the size of Manchester City, you know, one of the teams that could actually win this competition. 
And there's been kind of a furious response from the club. They think that UEFA is not an impartial body and they're going to appeal it to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is the final arbiter for sports disputes. And there's this huge legal battle coming up now, the details of which are going to become clear in the coming weeks. But depending on how City want to fight this case, they could argue that financial fair play, this effort to try and get clubs to spend within their means, basically the financial regulations of European football, should fall, that it's anti-competitive and shouldn't exist. And if that happens, what we're talking about is a landmark case in football. It would be an argument as to whether we stick with the status quo and UEFA has authority and its sanctions mean something, or we abandon all of that and clubs like City, gulf investors in clubs can spend what they want and alter the European football and financial elite. So we're all watching how that case plays out because it will completely transform football in the coming years. Andrew, is rivalry going on among golf leaders a factor in the desire to own the most successful clubs and attract the biggest events? How does all this play into regional politics? I think there's an element of rivalry in it. I mean, the Gulf states all have very similar dynamics. They're oil-rich, they're gas-rich, they have small populations, the exception being Saudi Arabia. And there was a period when Abu Dhabi and Qatar, they were looking to develop their economies, modernise and reduce their dependence on oil. And so sport became one element of that. They felt if we develop sports industry, you know, it helps us develop tourism, it helps us develop hospitality industries. And at the same time, it allows them to project their image on a broader scale because of the attention it gets owning Man City or a PSG or hosting a Formula One Grand Prix. I think you hear stories about the rivalries between PSG and Man City you hear one club will seek to outbid the other for a player and that kind of thing. So there is that kind of rivalry. I think where the rivalry could become more competitive is now Saudi Arabia has entered the market a stage after Qatar and the UAE were really at the forefront in terms of the Gulf states in investing in sport. And Saudi Arabia is the biggest in terms of population. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is clearly extremely ambitious. He's impatient. And we've seen them in a very short period of time sort of splashing the cash to get a raft of events. It's tennis, it's cycling, it's the Paris Dakar rally, it's world heavyweight boxing, all these kind of things. So I think now Saudi Arabia is coming into the mix, then you maybe see more competition there. And there's been a vicious battle over broadcasting rights of the sports in the Middle East, especially between Qatar and Saudi Arabia. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and here we're seeing the bitterness of the relations between Saudi Arabia and Qatar coming to the fore in the sporting arena. Qatar set up a sports channel offshoot of Al Jazeera News Network called Bein. They spent more than $15 billion on broadcasting rights, exclusive broadcasting rights for the Middle East. And Saudi Arabia, as tensions or relations between Doha and Riyadh have deteriorated, they've been accused of setting up their own network, which allows Saudis to stream these events for free. What so- was that network called? Be out Q. Be out instead of be in. Exactly, yeah. You're on it. Now, Saudi Arabia denies that there's any state involvement. BN has taken to the court, seeking a billion dollars in damages and accusing Saudi Arabia of industrial 
theft. And this has become a bigger issue in the sporting world. Well, hang on, if one entity is paying for exclusive rights and another which is allegedly affiliated to the state then comes in and basically sets up a pirate network to undermine that, how do the sporting bodies respond? So it's become a big issue and that's clearly seen as part of the broader dispute between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And so there are obviously a few economic and social reasons why it might make sense for golf leaders to spend this kind of money on sport. But what are the benefits these investments have brought to the wider society in the Gulf? I guess it depends how you measure it. And if you speak to officials in the Gulf, they say you can't just measure it on the basis of an investment in terms of you know return on investment. If you look at Abu Dhabi, for example, 2007, they unveiled their 2030 vision. They wanted to sort of develop high-end sports, entertainment, cultural establishments in the Emirates and do it differently from Dubai. So they developed Yas Island, big island, massive amount of money went to, I think, more than $20 billion. They created a Grand Prix. It's the end-of-season Grand Prix, attracts all kinds of stars, gets Abu Dhabi a lot of global attention, everyone who's watching F1, and they will say around that they've been able to develop and fine-tune a hospitality industry, a tourism industry. Saudi Arabia will say the same. You know, They would say partly it's to kind of open up the country, highly conservative country, and bring in global sports stars, and at the same time allow the outside world to say, hey, you know, we are a normal country. But Saudi Arabia has a big population. It's 30 million people, and that's the difference. They can fill stadiums for their local clubs. So clearly, you know, there is an argument they have very young populations. They are interested in sport. They need to develop sport. Obesity is the biggest killer in this region. So you know there is an economic and a social argument across it. Of course, people look at Qatar and the World Cup, uh, massive amount of money being spent on developing the infrastructure, 500 million a week Doha has been spending getting a huge amount of negative publicity because of allegations of corruption, because of their stance on LBGT, because there are questions about how can you hold a World Cup in such a small desert country with the temperatures, etc., treatment of foreign workers, all these kind of things. And so you could ask, what is the payoff between being able to say, we are you know, on the global stage, we can host one of the biggest sporting events in the world, compared to all the negative attention it's attracted to the Gulf state. Qataris would say, fine, we listen to the criticism, we learn from the criticism, we'll do things differently. But at the end of the day, this is a massive boost for us. This is a massive project and it's worth every cent. And Saudi Arabia, to go back on that, they've been desperate to repair their image or at least close the door on that chapter of their history on the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. What kind of events has it been attracting and has there been any pushback? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, just um, in the last couple of months, they've had the heavyweight world championship bout between Anthony Joshua and Ruiz Jr. That was in December in Riyadh. They've had the Paris-Dakar rally, which is, you know, one of the world's most prestigious motorsports events. They've had a $3 million tennis tournament. They've had European cycling, European golf. I mean, you name it now, a Spanish football tournament with Barcelona and Madrid, Italian Super Cup football tournament. It's all happening in the kingdom now. And you've got to say it all comes down to the money. There has been some fallout. Human rights groups say that the kingdom is trying to sports wash their negative image. In other words, deflect attention from the alleged human rights abuses, the crackdowns on dissent, etc., the killing of Khashoggi, all these things by saying, hey, look, you know, we're a great nation. We have, the world is coming to us. And they do fill seats. I mean, that's the thing. There are those who will not go on the basis of the human rights issue. And there was one of the Spanish broadcasters said they weren't going to broadcast this new Spanish football tournament with the four top teams playing because of human rights issues and that kind of thing. So that you get a little bit of pushback. But you've got to say, people are still going there. They host Formula E, electronic motor racing. 
they hosted the first race, you know, weeks after Khashoggi was killed. And it was seen in the kingdom as a big success. They've now issuing tourist visas so people can get in very easily and this kind of thing. So they're using sport very much to shape the image of the kingdom, try and show people that we are normal, the caricatures about us are wrong, and we're open to the outside world. So Murad, what impact is all this money having on sport itself and sporting events? At certain levels, it's transforming the price for anybody wanting to enter the sport. In football, it's changing the effect of the transfer market. So I spent some time at a reasonably big-sized club in Spain, Athletic Bilbao, and the president of that club was saying that the transfer market was completely screwed up after the Neymar transfer because what agents, what players were expecting was so much higher as a result. And that has a kind of a ripple effect across the sport. You get a group like UEFA, the governing body, who's now having to do financial fair play investigations. They never really set this up, imagining that they were going to have to possibly kick out some of the biggest teams in Europe from their competitions. You're seeing this battle for broadcasting rights that Andrew was talking about. If I was a betting man, I would say that Saudi Arabia sooner rather than later are going to set up their own broadcaster, an official broadcaster who will go bidding for these rights. And that will be interesting to see if they're willing to pay the same amounts of money that BN Sports are going to do. And like you say, because of these accusations of sports washing, we are having human rights activists and other groups having to seriously look into sporting groups as well as the Gulf states to see how legitimate or not these investments are. So it's completely transformed the face of a lot of sports across the world. Okay. Well, thank you, Murad, and thank you, Andrew, and thank you for listening. Just a quick note, the FT is actually hosting a Business of Football Summit taking place in London next month in March. If you'd like to sign up to join me and Murad as we host the likes of Andrea Agnelli, who owns Italy's Juventus, Stephen Zhang, who owns Italy's Inter Milan, and Gary Neville, the former Manchester United player turned pundit and businessman, as well as executives from across European and global football, you'll find a link in our show notes. In the meantime, don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on stranded hydrocarbon assets, Tesla's soaring share price, China's battle against the coronavirus, and what the Dutch can tell us about holding back floods as the polar ice melts. You can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.